This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. I'm Jennifer Milner, co-host of the Bendy Bodies podcast, here with host Dr. Linda Bluestein. We're speaking once again with Dr. Jill Schofield, founder and director of the Center for Multisystem Disease. Dr. Schofield, welcome back. Yes, thanks for having me. Absolutely. <laughs> In our last discussion, we talked about autoimmune disorders, looking at the links between EDS, MCAS, APS, and more. And today we're trying to dig deeper into multisystemic diseases and how to get help. So you are the founder and director of the Center for Multisystem Disease in Denver, Colorado. Can you tell us why you chose that name? Well, I chose that name. I mean, it sort of speaks for itself. These I'm, I'm targeting the patients who have symptoms and problems in multiple organ systems. And so they tend to be bounced from physician to physician and whose you know, specialty has a kind of a narrow lens looking at the GI tract, looking at the skin, looking at the heart. And so patients who truly have a multi-system disease like, like MCAS tend to fall through the cracks because nobody's looking at the big picture. It's like, what's that um, elephant, you know, the big elephant where one right. guy's looking at the tail. <laughs> the part, one's is this part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's why I, I, I named my practice that in hopes of increasing awareness that there is no care currently mm -hmm. and there is no training currently for multi-system diseases and nobody really thinks about them and nobody is equipped to take care of them. The insurance companies don't recognize the complexity and the time that it takes to care for patients with multi-system diseases. Mm -hmm. So what do you want patients to know about multi-systemic diseases? I guess that you really have to be your own advocate. And if you've gone to a provider and you feel like they haven't addressed your situation or taken you seriously, you have to keep looking and looking and looking. Um, and there aren't a lot of us out there who do this work. Unfortunately, as we already said, most of us don't take insurance because you know, the insurance companies don't, reimburse you to take care of, spend the hours it takes to actually delve in and try to sort out these problems. Mm -hmm. um, the internet has been a godsend in helping patients get the care that they need. And a lot, most, many patients with these conditions have really had to educate themselves, unfortunately, and to figure out where to get care and to understand and recognize that what they're being told by certain providers is incorrect, mm -hmm. not all in their head. That, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's unfortunate because not all patients have the ability to do that. Right. So people around the world are, are sort of experiencing this now, experiencing the symptoms at least of it. But like you said, having the trouble getting the health care that they need. What, yeah. what are some things people can do to try to get better care for themselves? And is there anything that they should avoid doing? Well, it's, I think it's a really uh, difficult to get the right care. I think you have to educate yourself. I think this new book, Disjointed, 
is valuable. I think Dr. Afrin's book, Never Bet Against Occam on um, MCAS is invaluable. Um, I think all of the patient forums are invaluable for patients to see where they're falling into and to try to get to a provider that is a good match. Um, I think the one of the silver line, linings of the COVID pandemic is that telemedicine have, restrictions have been relaxed and that is hugely valuable because yep. for example I've been able to see people in New Zealand who now didn't have to fly here we're too sick to fly here and it's outrageously expensive to fly here and mm -hmm. you know, and even just people five states away it's still a big deal right so so that I hope is going to I, I hope those relaxations are going to stay because everybody in the medical community has found that invaluable and the patient community invaluable. And I think it's going to be hard to go back to the way it was. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that will only make it so much easier for people to get an appointment with somebody who matches up with the research that you've done that shows would be a good match for your case. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I do think that a lot of people can get diagnosed um, and treated reasonably well um, in the kind of silos of medicine, I call it. You know, like if you have pot, you think you have POTS, you can go to cardiology. You want to go to a cardiologist who actually knows a little bit about POTS because a lot of cardiologists sometimes don't even seem to know what their criteria are because it's not their area of interest. So you want to try to get to somebody who knows about it. And then a lot of people the simple treatments really help them. Hmm. I think it's the people with more complex disease that really do need to see somebody who specializes in these conditions, hmm. who actually looks at, knows about POTS, knows about mast cell, knows about EDS, knows about autoimmunity. And there aren't that many people out there who do that work, but there are more and more. Yeah. Uh, as I said, there's no training program. Um, there, you know, everybody who does this work, you know, has learned about it on their own, you know, right. <laughs> goes to the conferences, pays their own way to the conferences. You know, we're all, we have a physician listserv of over now over 200 physicians who treat these multi-system diseases all over the world. It's an incredible dialogue that goes on every day. We all learn from each other. It's very complicated, very complicated. We learn from our patients. We tell each other, I saw this patient with this and everybody chimes in, you know, and there's an incredibly broad expertise, so many specialties. Um, and one day it's going to turn into a training program. I have no doubt about it. And there will be insurance companies that recognize that patient, these complex patients, these patients are complex and they need more time. The provider needs more time to see them. Right. It doesn't help to have 10 different people just spending a rush job. You know, it needs to be, okay, we have time to educate you how to treat these, go mm -hmm. through all the possibilities that might be leading to your symptoms, et cetera. Mm -hmm. One day we will have codified specialty for this, right? Yes. But until then, I think they're, so. They're going to have to do the hard work themselves and do the research and, yeah, and, and see what they can find I, out there. I feel really bad about that. But yeah. on the other hand, we are light years ahead of where we were five years ago. We light are. years ahead. Yes. Yes. Just with, and, you know, you know, Dysautonomia International. I think Lauren Stiles, who's the president of Dysautonomia International, she single-handedly changed the face of the management of Dysautonomia by 
just, she had the skill set where she was able to educate patients. She was able to generate money. She was able to bring all these great researchers together and make them compete for grants and, you know, provide, make this conference and publicize the videos and, you know, in just in a matter of like no time, like people actually mm. know what POTS is now. Mm. That's true. Well, and as we have seen, um, as we have seen caregivers like yourself increasing in numbers and as we've seen mm -hmm. the research starting to come out, um, we've, it also seems like we're seeing an increase in the prevalence of multisystemic diseases. Do you think yeah. we're just starting to identify them or do you think that they are becoming more commonplace as well? That's a great question. I mean, I definitely think MCAS is exploding because our environment, our food supply is a joke. Yeah. And the people with MCAS are like the canary in the coal mine. They are sensitive to all the chemicals in our environment, which have, mm -hmm. are just rampant. And, you know, the SAD diet, the standard American diet, has absolutely no nutritional value. It's riddled with chemicals. You know, all the teenagers eat fast food all the time and blah, blah, blah. And processed food. Nobody has time to, you know, make real food. And if you walk down an elementary school classroom today, they're like signs all over. We got all these food allergies. We got asthma. We got the, you know, and you can't bring any food into the classroom that's not tell you exactly what the ingredients are. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, that is just completely different. Even when my kids who are 16 and 18 were in elementary school, mm. so that right there, I think that tells us MCAS, it seems to be exploding, but mm -hmm. it hasn't been studied. And obviously there definitely is more awareness. There's way more awareness about EDS and there's mm -hmm. way more awareness about POTS. So I can't answer that for sure. I, I think the increased awareness is playing a huge role in it. Yeah. Um, and I think there's so many people, it's just great when you see a patient who doesn't, didn't know anything about EDS, POTS or mast cell, and they come in and they have obviously all three and it's so validating for them to say, oh, I actually, you know, that they, they just said, thought all those things were normal their whole life. Just, right. You know, you start to go through, cause I go back to the beginning of their, you know, from the time of birth, right. And ask, mm -hmm. you know, do you have this? And the autoimmune patients will often say, I had one girl who said, I was the healthiest kid that ever lived until I went to Haiti and I got this bit by something. And then I've been the sickest kid that ever lived since where the mast cell and EDS patients will be mm -hmm. like, I had this and I had that. And then I had this mm -hmm. and then I had that. And you're just like, Oh my God. <laughs> and you just hear the same story over and over and over again. And it's just um, for them to go through all of that and have no, you know, just be told they have nothing right on right. with them. You know, so it's great that people are getting diagnosed earlier mm -hmm. and people are, the awareness is exploding mainly, in my opinion, secondary to social, you know, the internet and social media. Mm -hmm. I would awesome. agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, it is. Um, and I would say having seen so many of my dancers go through dealing with their own autoimmune issues and, and EDS and stuff just being validated for spending your whole yes. life being told there's nothing wrong with you and yeah. then being told oh no there's this this and this and god yeah. bless you for having lived with it this long yeah and they it's, read about it and they see there's other people mm -hmm. yeah, it's incredibly validating and yes also you know the the thing about mcas is it's extremely treatable it may be complex and it may take a lot of time and education 
but it's extremely treatable. So, mm-hmm. um, and it, it sort of goes with EDS and, and right. pop, you know, so most people were able to help significantly once we, you know, if we can have the time and right. them and evaluate them properly. Right. Once you know what you're looking at. Well, yeah. and talking about, you were mentioning diagnosis earlier and it's, it's so hard for a lot of these people to be diagnosed. Um, in your disjointed book chapter, autoimmunity and hypermobility, you discussed a lot of the challenges with autoimmune disorders and hypermobility, um, one of which is the diagnostic criteria. Can you, can you explain the general pros and cons of more lenient versus more strict diagnostic criteria for a given disease, and, and then more specifically for autoimmune disorders and hypermobility? Yeah, I think it's a very, very difficult issue mm-hmm. because there are pros and cons on each side that is making the box bigger and making it smaller. Right. It really depends upon the condition. Um, The paper that Dr. Afrin was the first author on that was just published on the Global Consensus 2 criteria for MCAS um, has a criteria that creates a much bigger box for MCAS than the other group the consensus, we call it the consensus one criteria. And I think having a bigger box in that case is so important because those patients with MCAS, there can be simple, simple, simple things that just dramatically turn around their life, like changing their diet and over-the-counter medications like H1 blockers and H2 Mm -hmm. blockers. And if we're making the box so restrictive and the person doesn't think they have it, then they're missing out on easy life changing treatment. Now, when we're dealing with autoimmune disease and we're talking about treatment with things like, you know, immune suppressant medications or IVIG or rituximab or TNF inhibitors, you know, these very expensive drugs carry more risk, then I think it's appropriate to make the box more narrow. Mm -hmm. However, when there are like antiphospholipid syndrome, as we were talking about, there are also relatively simple treatments that can be a game changer. And just the awareness of the presence of the antibodies, even if, you know, to reduce the risk of getting a blood clot, you know, mm-hmm. important. So um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's complicated. And I think patients just have to educate themselves. I, I like, mm-hmm. and especially in antiphospholipid, I arm my patients with a lot of papers and I, have them read it and be aware of the issues so that when they have a doctor tell them you shouldn't be on Plavix, they can um, show them why they're on Plavix and understand and advocate for themselves. And most of the patients in that group who have had everyday disabling headaches who find they go away with Plavix or even anticoagulation will uh, bite off any doctor's head who tries to tell them to go (laughs) on. Try to take their plavix but away. I like them to have a, I, there's one paper written by Dr. Hughes who described the APS called heparin antiphospholipid antibodies in the brain. It's one page. I love that paper. They can give it to a doctor and say, here, read this. Mm-hmm. And it opens their eyes as to, this is not just blood clots and pregnancy complications. There are more symptoms involved. Right. They're treatable. They are treatable. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> it's, I think it's the bane of my existence, these, these criteria. Yeah. It but sounds, we have to have them. We have to right, have them. Right. It sounds like if we can have the more lenient criteria that's a little bit larger, you know, like a bullseye, it gives people kind of a safe place to say, oh, well, maybe 
if I might have MCAS, maybe I should try an elimination diet or something very right. basic and easy, exactly. right? And then as you start to narrow it down more and more, that requires more specialist care, more yeah, uh, more stringent criteria to to appropriately monitor. Right, to give the bigger gun drugs. Like, right, it, right. Yeah, like Zolaire or Gleevec, Imatinib, you know, these more expensive drugs with potentially greater risk. Although, right. Yeah. I mean, I don't really consider any of the drugs we use in MCAS all that great a risk, but Zolaire would be the highest one, the highest risk one I would consider. Right. So yeah, we want to be sure. And also the insurance companies, rightfully so, um, should require a certain level of meeting a certain level of diagnostic mm -hmm. criteria before they're going to pay for these really expensive drugs. Right. But right. yeah, MCAS is my favorite example of one where I, I just think, I, I believe, you know, the, the group, um, Dr. Moldering's in uh, the University of Bonn, I think has estimated about 17% of the German population is on the spectrum of MCAS. And that's wow. probably true. You know, the, these are people who have things like asthma, eczema, hives, food allergies, environmental mm -hmm. allergies, recurrent sinus trouble, you know, you can recognize those people immediately. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are people like, I don't have any of those things. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So right. there's about 15% of the people that got some or all of those things. And then there's 85 who don't have any. And these 15%, they're the ones sensitive to all these chemicals and the, you know, just changing up the diet and taking simple things that quiet down the mast cells and understanding the condition can just like open up, figuring out what's triggering them. Right. It's huge. Right. It's so helpful and empowering that they feel like they can do something to help themselves feel better. Absolutely. Yeah. MCAS patients, I feel like most MCAS patients can, if they educate themselves and learn about all this and, and you know, see one of us one time even to educate mm -hmm. them, go through their story, most people can take charge and manage their case independently because almost everything, so many other things are over the counter. Yeah. Well, speaking of MCAS, you have also published peer-reviewed scientific articles on mast cell activation syndrome. And in 2019, you wrote, Recognition and Management of Excipient Reactivity in Patients with Mast Cell Activation Syndrome with yep. Dr. Lawrence Afrin. And yep. in 2020, Diagnosis of Mast Cell Activation Syndrome, a Global Consensus Two. Now with Drs. Lawrence Afrin, Dr. Bluestein, and an impressive list of colleagues. So what would you like patients to know about MCAS? And if they suspect they might have it, what would you encourage them to do? Well, Dr. Afrin deserves like all the credit for that second paper. <laughs> and, and that has to do with, and it was just like an incredible amount of work and he, he's brilliant and he has single-handedly single like moved forward the field of MCAS. And I'm, I and most of us are grateful for his generosity of time and his brilliance in figuring these things out. But the other paper, and, and so maybe that's, that paper is focusing on what box size we should be using mm. and argues that the consensus one criteria, they, they didn't call it the consensus one, they just called it the consensus, mm -hmm. but we call it the consensus one and these are the consensus. The consensus one is like this shrinking tiny box and the consensus two is a bigger box. And, right. And so we've gone through the pros and cons of that and I just, most of us 
in the trenches seeing patients who have helped people with simple things. It's so important to have a bigger box for MCAS. But the excipient paper, that's another one of my passionate interests. <laughs> um, because we have found that chemicals, not only in the diet and personal care and cleaning products, but chemicals are, these are also in medications and a lot of people mm -hmm. are not aware of that. They're in also sometimes supplements, although the supplement industry is more in tune with the concept and they tend to have cleaner products in general. There still are companies who make dirtier products, but the pharmaceutical industry, oh my mm -hmm. God, mm -hmm. I mean, you can go and you can go out of your way, just like super clean, organic, non-processed diet. And then someone gives you these medications and they're filled with toxins that flare mm -hmm. in mast cells. Yep. So that is a paper. It's posted on my website, Center for Multisystem Disease, that talks, gives a lot of patient examples about um, the importance of knowing what excipients or fillers or not inactive ingredients, those are all synonyms, are in the medications you're taking. Mm -hmm. and there are usually alternatives that don't have those or right. ways to work around it. Um, can take some creativity. And that's another thing that the patient has to educate themselves on and take ownership mm -hmm. of. Um, the NIH FDA Daily Med website, I think the URL is in that um, paper. Um, you can find the ingredients in any medication and you can do a lot of your own research on there and make sure you're not making yourself worse with medications. Right, right. And even just the same medication, but um, different companies' generic version of it. I've, I've yeah, had well, it doesn't have to do too happen. much with the brand versus the generic because the brand could be even worse than the generic. You know, mm -hmm. it just has to do with what the ingredients are because the active ingredients right. are the same. Right, it's the everything else. It's the everything else. And the mm -hmm. brand is not superior to the generic. It, it can be, the generic can be better than the brand. You just have to know what, what you're dealing with. You right. Or, or two different versions of generic too. From yeah, two well, that's, a, that's yeah. the most important clue that you have an excipient problem by definition. Right. I saw a patient yesterday took disoxycodone, helped her, should this one, made her sick. Then that by definition is an excipient problem. And you just got to right. look up, you got to find out what are the chemicals in this one and what are the mm -hmm. ones in this one. And you may, sometimes you have to make, well, I encourage people to make a spreadsheet because unfortunately most of the drugs have many excipients. So it can be kind of complicated, but the two categories that have risen to the top in my experience is the most likely would be the FDNC dyes, like FDNC red number five, yellow and blue. And there's also green and black. Um, and then anything that says alcohol, polyvinyl alcohol, benzyl alcohol, mm -hmm. plain alcohol, those tend to really activate mast cells in people with MCAS, and they may have mm -hmm. no effect at all on people without it. Yeah. It sounds like people with MCAS have to do a lot of their own research and advocating, yeah. even if they do have a doctor on their side who is helping work with them. Yep, absolutely. That is a lot to navigate. It is a lot, but there are resources to help people. These patient forums, Dr. Afrin's book, there are other books, and it does take a lot of reading, and, and people with Everybody with MCAS is different. Mm -hmm. So you have to also be aware of that if you're reading on patient forums or you're reading a book that this might not apply to you, but then you read this person's story and it opens your eyes. Oh, that might be what's triggering me. You know, so that's right. where you just got to read a lot. And um, 
people figure things out really quickly when their eyes are open to the, mm -hmm. to the diagnosis. That's mm -hmm. why we are such, we in the consensus two group are such big advocates for making the diagnostic criteria looser. Looser. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I know that you have also written about HPV syndrome. What can you tell us about HPV syndrome? Well, H the HPV vaccine, I don't see a lot of this, but I do believe that it can be a trigger of um, autoimmune POTS, CRPS, and MCAS. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason, and so that paper is also posted on my website, the whole paper. Any vaccine can trigger an autoimmune disease. I mean, that, that's well recognized. It's one of the many triggers. Mm -hmm. And also they can probably trigger MCAS. Um, but the thing unique about the HPV vaccine is that there's three, it's a three vaccine series. I think now it's maybe a two vaccine series, but it used to be a three vaccine series. And so many of us saw patients who, they got the first one, and they developed everyday headaches that they didn't have before pretty quickly right after that vaccine within days. Um, and then they didn't get the next one until nine months later. And then right after getting that one, now they have their headaches are even worse than they have POTS. Mm. So it was this, this um, it's a very controversial area because you can't, it's very hard to prove causation between a vaccine and an illness. And so people would say, right. well, people getting this vaccine, are all young females and that's who gets POTS and you know and so but because of that temporal association that many of us have seen I believe it's a real link and um, the patient that I described in that paper has had a great response to IVAG I mean the patient the few patients that I've seen they have autoimmunity and severe MCAS I, I didn't really talk about the MCAS piece in that paper because it was still early days with MCAS but that patient did have, does have severe MCAS too, and, and another patient I've seen with a severe case that has also really bad MCAS. So um, it's just a controversial area, but you know the and, and sometimes it like I said the triggers are hard to it's always hard to know for sure what a trigger is, and probably there are more than one trigger that needs to occur. So the the controversy is always just because nobody wants to speak negatively about vaccines because vaccines have done so much for medicine and, and we're learning that the risk of infectious diseases in with covid but i mean the hpv vaccine doesn't reach that threshold because we can already prevent cervical cancer and so the patients that I've seen with this all have a family history of autoimmune disease um, or a personal history of autoimmune disease. So I just rec recommend to my patients who are in that age group, mm -hmm. who have a family history of POTS, a personal history of POTS, a family history of autoimmunity, a personal history of autoimmunity to consider not getting that unnecessary mm -hmm. vaccine. Mm -hmm. It's not a necessary vaccine. Interesting. And what about other vaccines? Seen it destroy people's lives to the best wow. that we can tell. You know what I mean? As far mm -hmm. as you can prove the causation. Um, well, that's the big one. I mean, MCAS patients, um, there is a subset who seem to react to vaccines and they're, mm -hmm. they seem to generally react to vaccines. And so a lot of them don't get vaccines because it revs up their mass cell. We don't know, you know, 
it seems like a reasonable thing to do to pre-medicate, like it's a really important vaccine, so you want to get this COVID-19 vaccine, right. the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine when it comes out, um, but you know your reactive vaccine, so you might load up on your mast cell therapy before. We don't know if that's helpful, but it seems like a reasonable thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, are there other precautions people can take if they've reacted adversely to a vaccine in the past before they get another one that's necessary? You know, just what I said. Yeah. And, you know, if you were to say take like a really high dose of steroids and you probably wouldn't respond adequately to the vaccine. Right. But if you're just taking, you know, antihistamines and things like higher dose of antihistamines, that shouldn't really prevent your responsiveness to the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I had MCAS and I reacted to vaccines and I wanted to get the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, that's what I'd do. I would load up on whatever drugs were helping my MCAS mm. before I got it. And, and that's the same concept that we recommend, you know, before somebody with MCAS has surgery or has a procedure. Um, there are perioperative um, recommendations that Dr. Bluestein has published about, and they're very important to reducing the risk of having a horrible flare of MCAS. Right. Um, and I've seen people just, I've been really shocked over the years at the severity of a flare that a person with MCAS can have from simple things like an EGD that you wouldn't think would be that big of a deal. Mm. So I really recommend people pre-medicate for those procedures or surgeries. Right. That's so interesting. Thank you. And, and vaccines um, can have um, preservatives too, right? Like thimerosal. Right, yeah. So you could get a thimerosal free, like I always request a thimerosal free flu vaccine for the oh, okay. influenza. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if those patients are reacting to chemicals in the vaccine or if their muscles are just being revved up by, as I mentioned, the adjuvant, the adjuvant that is present in the vaccine, which is something that revs up your immune system so that you actually, your immune system actually responds to the piece of right. the microbe that's in there. So if you mm -hmm. just inject the piece of the microbe, you know, the immune system response is weak. It's not going to be enough to like create this like sustained immune response. Response. Yeah. So that, you know, like I said, people with MCAS, they're way over here on the bell-shaped curve of mm -hmm. how active your immune system is and the, those people, just like those this people way over here, I, I don't even know if my hand is in the in <laughs> are gonna, you know, like they're more sensitive to chemicals. It makes mm -hmm. sense that mm -hmm. some of those people might be more sensitive to just their immune system just exploding from that adjuvant. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of a lot of sense. And everybody, there's no guide. There's no good guidance for that. I mean, people have most people have a gut feeling about it, and some people are just flat out, "I'm never getting another vaccine," and other people are like, "I really want to get this one. I'm going to premedicate for it." I mean, you really have to think carefully about what vaccine it is. I mean, the flu vaccine, the efficacy is really not that good. Um, the meningococcal vaccine, you know, that's a really important vaccine for kids going off to college. So that would be one that I would make a higher priority. All the ones in infancy, all bets are, you know, like most of those right. are important. Um, so it's, it's just, I think the HPV vaccine is the one that stands out as an unnecessary vaccine, in my opinion. Mm. And I have seen it destroy the lives of more than one person. So I just think it makes sense if, you know, that one, if you have a, a personal or family history of miscarriages that get kicked off, you might want to think about just getting pap smears instead. Do, yeah. do, you, do you know much about the Shingrix, the, you know, for the post-herpetic neuralgics? I'm thinking about, again, with chronic pain and 
Um, do you know much about the efficacy of that one? Oh or? yeah, those those vaccines are very efficacious, and those are in older patients. I think it's sixty-five and older, or sixty. Well, they're they're recommending it over fifty now. Okay, over fifty. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. But yeah, those those are highly efficacious vaccines, and they're one time. And yeah, the people who get post-herpetic neuralgia—that's a terrible problem. And mm-hmm. yeah, the herpes viruses can cause a lot of trouble. Um, for sure. So I, I think the chickenpox vaccine is worth getting too. Yeah. Yeah. It just becomes a tricky, you got to wait. I mean, it's just tricky. Right. right. One Trying day to we'll make... have genetic testing to, you know, and we'll be able to say, okay, you're safe for this and you're not safe for that, you know, but we're just a long way off. And, and that's the way we'll be testing for MCAS uh, one day too. Yeah. And until then, we are just doing educated guesses, and we try to yeah. educate ourselves as best that we can. Yeah. We're well, pretty good I, guessers, though. We, I, I mean, you know, we try. We try. Yeah. We try to read a lot, right? And then make yeah. good guesses, find good doctors <laughs> to help us make good guesses. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you answering all of our questions. Yeah, is my there, pleasure. Is there anything you wanted to add to what we talked about today? And I don't think so. I think that was a massive amount of info. <laughs> that was a massive amount of info, but I loved every minute of it. Yeah, me too. Probably listening me to too. It myself. I do have a question because of the coronavirus stuff. Are you open for uh, consults to uh, other states? We talked a little bit about telemedicine mm-hmm. last time. Yeah, absolutely. But, okay. So right now you can, even if they can't fly out to mm-hmm. see you or yep. whatever. So, okay. So yep. they should just contact your office and, yep. and take it from there. So yep. awesome. perfect. Yep. Excellent. And once again, where can people find you? Uh, Center for Multisystem Disease in Denver, Colorado. You can just Google it. In Denver, Colorado. Excellent. Thank you so much. We really appreciate all of that. You have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, our guest has once again been Dr. Jill Schofield, founder and director of the Center for Multisystem Disease. Dr. Schofield, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Bendy Bodies podcast and for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. Please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Bendy Bodies YouTube channel as well. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. Visit our website, www.bendybodies.org, for more information. For a limited time, you could win an autographed copy of the popular textbook, Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders, just by sharing what you love about the Bendy Bodies podcast. On Instagram, tag us at bendy underscore bodies and on Facebook at Bendy Bodies Podcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-hosts and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This podcast is intended for general education only and does not constitute medical advice. Your own individual situation may vary. Do not make any changes without first seeking your own individual care from your physician. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast. 
This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.